Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. You will recall that back in the spring of 1989, 30 years ago, I researched, created, and taught an institute class at the University of Texas at Austin on the subject of defending the faith. It was a series of 12 classes. I have previously published the first and second lectures from those classes. I'm going to be continuing with those lectures today with the next lecture in the series, which is lecture number three. This lecture continues on from lecture two and addresses several more criticisms of the Book of Mormon. In lecture three, I cover the Spalding theory, lock horns with Walter Martin, address the issue of Christ being born at Jerusalem, talk about the story of Nephi's slaying of Laban, and finally address the frequently heard complaint that the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. So return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Radio Free Mormon rides again. Here is lecture number three. I hope you enjoy it. Well, this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the Book of Mormon and certain questions raised concerning the Book of Mormon. Last week, as you'll recall, we talked about uh, the question about the very existence of the Book of Mormon, that uh, the Bible is all that there is, and that the Book of Mormon shouldn't exist by rights. Uh, also about why is the Book of Mormon written in King James English? Why does the Book of Mormon quote the Bible? And why all the changes in the Book of Mormon? Why all those changes which we discovered were by and large grammatical, punctuation, these types of things. Uh, I did want to show you one other change that was made in the Book of Mormon because last week we were running out of time and I said that there was a certain change I wanted to show you that I thought was humorous. And I never got back to that because I was trying to uh, compress it all before we had to leave. Uh, but this is another change that was uh, originally appeared in the 1830 version of the Book of Mormon, but was changed in 1837 in order to get it back to what the original manuscript said. Okay, So this is another one of those changes that was in order to get it back to what was actually written on the, uh, the manuscript that was uh, uh, written by Oliver Cowdery. And this one has to do with Gaddy Anton. And we all know who Gaddy Anton is, being a good Latter-day Saints, and having read the Book of Mormon thoroughly, and uh, you don't even have to have read the Book of Mormon, I suppose, if you've been raised in this church, you know who Gaddy Anton is. Who was Gaddy Anton? What was he? Robert. Right, thank you. I mean, that's his name, right? Gaddy Anton D. Robert. That's his full name. And, uh, but that's not the way it came out in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. What it came out as, when that appeared, it was Gaddy Anton, the nobler. That's who he was. He was Gaddy Anton, the nobler. And if you uh, look, if you think about it for a second, and think about how robber is spelled, and how nobler is spelled, and then you imagine a little bit more, perhaps sloppier handwriting, not even that much more. You know people who have R's that look like N's, and then the second L, or the second B, looking somewhat like an L. Well, the, uh, the printer, the person who set the type, for Grandin Press, thought that uh, Oliver Cowdery's robber looked like a nobler, and so he put it down. And of course, he had no idea, so he just put it down what he thought looked best. And in the 1837 edition, that uh, change was caught and was reformed to conform with the original manuscript. Now, that's basically all I want to talk about, all those different changes in the Book of Mormon. We've gone over a number of them. There was one other important part, but uh, I won't belabor the fact, and th another reason for uh, so many different changes in the spelling was because at that time in the 1830s, spelling was not as standardized as we have it today. 
We've grown up in a society where spelling is very standardized. When you spell something, by and large, either you spell it right or you spell it wrong. You know, there's either a right or wrong, and so we can have these wonderful spelling bees, which you may have participated in in school. But at this time, spelling was nowhere near standardized. You could spell it a lot more according to the way it sounded in your mind. And so we have instances in the original 1830 Book of Mormon where plates, as in the gold plates, were spelled P-L-A-I-T-S, because that was the way it sounded. And there was no one around to say, well, that's wrong. It just wasn't standardized as it is today. So over the years, that has been conformed, even as we have conformed our English language to a more standardized version in spelling. Now, what all this goes to, er, almost everything that we've talked about so far, including last week, you know, uh, quoting the book, quoting the Bible, the Book of Mormon, quoting the Bible. Why all these almost 4,000 changes in the Book of Mormon? All that goes to showing, hey, Joseph Smith was an ignorant person. He was very ignorant, okay? And we have no qualms with that. We've said that from the beginning. Joseph Smith said that. He acknowledged that. He said, I was backwoods, no schooling, what, maybe about a third grade education. That's all I had time for. I was too busy helping my dad with farm, and etc. But all this goes to the fact that he was a very ignorant young man. We have, you know, people uh, back when the Book of Mormon came forth saying, how stupid to be quoting the Bible when you're making this book that is supposed to fool a Bible-reading public. How stupid can you be to do that? And then we have other instances, well, what about all these changes? How stupid he was, how ignorant to make all these dumb punctuation and spelling errors. Obviously, the person who produced this, Joseph Smith, was a very ignorant young man. Now, I want you to beware here, okay? Because now we're going to be moving into another area where all of a sudden Joseph Smith becomes very brilliant. All right? All of a sudden now, Joseph Smith is very, very intelligent. He knows things that probably you or I would not know. And most of us here are college students. There's certainly more than a third grade backwards education like Joseph Smith had. And all of a sudden now, he knows many, many very, very uh, deep and uh, obscure literary things. And yet, this is supposed to be the same Joseph Smith. All right. Now, critics of the church often have no trouble with that. It's kind of like, well, how many of you are big Star Trek fans? Ah, many hands, good. Well, perhaps you remember the episode where Kirk gets split in two. Oh, yeah. You've got the evil Captain Kirk and the good Captain Kirk, and neither one of them alone can live without the other and all this stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite... I have to get off on this for a second. One of my favorite theological statements comes from that episode, okay? And it deals with, remember when the good Captain Kirk, uh, he's losing his ability to make decisions, and he's alone in the transporter room, and he's coming out, and he says, well, uh, I need to tell the crew... They're a good crew. They deserve to know what's happening to me. And Spock, and Spock stops him. We're trying to say that three times fast. Spock stops him and says, wait a second. He says, you can't do that. You cannot afford the luxury of being anything less than perfect. Because if the crew sees you as anything less than perfect, they lose faith. And if they lose faith in you, you lose command. I think there are many, many deep theological implications in what that wise Vulcan said, but we're not going to deal with them in this, in this course. I just wanted to throw that out because um, I think we can learn so much from 60s television. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Okay, we're going on to question number five. Oh, I have to make this, uh, this analogy. Right. We've got the good Kirk and the evil Kirk. In the same way, it's kind of like we have the, the intelligent Joseph Smith, the brilliant Joseph Smith, and the stupid, ignorant Joseph Smith. And they both exist, exist side by side in many critics' minds. 
you'll see many, many books written by the same authors or many questions raised by the same people which pose one right beside each other. Well, here's something that shows how stupid he was, and here's something that shows how brilliant he was. And they don't see any inconsistency there. It's a good idea, if you can, if you ever run up into that, to point out that inconsistency. He was either one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. And this is one that shows uh, an incredible knowledge on the part of Joseph Smith, if it's true. Uh, and that is, does the Book of Mormon quote Shakespeare? Or as it might be worded otherwise, why does the Book of Mormon quote Shakespeare? Which would be a, a leading question. But at any rate, first off, I want you to know, it does not quote Shakespeare though it's often stated that it does. Let me read to you uh, this uh, passage from the Book of Mormon, and I want to read it to you in context, all right? Second uh, Nephi 2, 13 through 15. Now, just listen to what I'm uh, going to read, and if you want to, you can certainly go ahead and, and look it up and read along. Uh, 13 through 15. Is that right? Second Nephi 2, 13 through 15. No, that's not right. Well, I have it here. Ah, excuse me, 2 Nephi 1, 13 through 15. I have my marker in the wrong place. Okay. Now let me just read these uh, three verses to you, okay? And listen carefully, all you college students and uh, all you graduates and everything and all you intelligent people out here. Oh, that you would awake. Awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. Awake and arise from the dust, and hear the words of a trembling parent, whose limbs ye must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave, from whence no traveler can return. A few more days, and I go the way of all the earth. But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I'm just going to read those three verses there. Anybody here who doesn't already know what I'm talking about, okay? Anybody here recognize Shakespeare in that? Anyone? Now, do you know what I'm talking about? If, if you do, then you're disqualified, but go ahead and tell me. Let's see. What do you think is Shakespeare in that? The old and silent grave, grave, from whence no Right. Have you ever heard of this before? Yes. Okay, what do you think that is? Why does that jump to your mind? Just, uh, I vaguely remember hearing this sometime. Okay, okay. I assume that's right. And I think that it also helps that I read three verses and I tell you, basically, that something in there is supposed to resemble Shakespeare. But uh, that's very good. That is the, the point in question, all right? Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that in order to know it and put it in here, okay, would take a lot more intelligence than to have read three verses, you know, and be able to say, well, that sounds like something he, he wrote once, right? You know what I'm saying? It'd take a lot more knowledge of Shakespeare to put it in than to see it in there. But, um, yet Joseph Smith was supposed to have put it in here. Let me read to you what it is in Shakespeare that is supposed to be this. Quoted, okay, and note the words, quote because you'll find there's no quote at all from Shakespeare. Um, let me read this to you. This is from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. It's his third soliloquy, the famous one. It starts out with to be or not to be. We go down, and we find uh, 
on page 219, at least in this edition. No, this would be the regular one. It's Act 3, Scene 1, line, what would that be, about 77 through 80. Uh, says, death, not the grave, but death, the undiscovered country from whose born, which is a boundary, from whose born no traveler returns. Okay? And you see the same idea. Now, first off, I think you can see immediately that that is by no means quoting Shakespeare. At the best, you'd have to say it was paraphrasing that same type of idea, that death is this place from which no traveler can return. But in order for you to get a really good idea of this, okay, I want to read this to you in context. All right? Because just to read this one phrase here and to read this one phrase here out of the middle of this big old Shakespearean play, out of the middle of all the Shakespearean plays that Shakespeare wrote, amplifies it to a an undue degree, I think. I want you to get an idea. To be or not to be, now I'm going to read this real fast, okay, because you're familiar with it. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing in them, to die to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the lips and scorns of time? Scorns of time, excuse me. The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the laws delayed, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Hmm? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? This conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickly door with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard, the currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. Now, I think reading in context helps you understand how buried that phrase is, completely, in the soliloquy. Um, first off, it isn't quoted. Second, can you imagine how intelligent they're saying Joseph Smith is? To be so familiar with Shakespeare as to be able to take a line embedded here, and then make it in a line just totally embedded here, in the Book of Mormon. The question might come out as to why on earth you would want to do that, but nevertheless, that is the claim. So, now Justice Smith is an extremely intelligent individual, as opposed to the stupid person who made so many errors. Um, now, let me also state that this is not that original an idea, death being an undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. As a matter of fact, Hugh Nibley, in addressing this, shows many different quotes from uh, documents that date back around 600 B.C. to the time when Lehi was alive. Of course, he was the person who said that uh, in 2 Nephi chapter 1 he was speaking. Uh, this is uh, Hugh Nebley from an approach to the Book of Mormon, pages 228 and 229. Uh, no passage in the Book of Mormon has been more often singled out for attack than Lehi's description of himself as one, quote, whose limbs ye must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave from whence no traveler can return, unquote. This passage has inspired scathing descriptions of the Book of Mormon as a mass of stolen quotations, quote, from Shakespeare and other English poets, unquote, or at least an anti-Mormon. And this one paraphrase that bears a slight resemblance to Shakespeare over a little bit of time with a little bit of imagination on the critic's part grows not to just a paraphrase of Shakespeare, but it is, quote, uh, it's a mass of stolen quotations from Shakespeare and other English poets. So these things tend to grow over time. Continuing now with what Hugh Nibley says, Lehi does not quote Hamlet directly, to be sure, for he does not talk of that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, but simply speaks of the cold and silent grave 
from whence no traveler can return. In mentioning the grave, the eloquent old man cannot resist the inevitable cold and silent, nor the equally inevitable tag about the traveler, a device that, with all respect to Shakespeare, Lehi's own contemporaries made constant use of. Long ago, Friedrich Delich wrote a classic work on ancient oriental ideas about death and afterlife, and a fitting title of his book was Das Land ohne Heimkehr, which means in German, the land of no return. Sounds familiar. In the story of Ishtar's descent to the underworld, the lady goes to the Irsit Latari, quote, the land of no return, unquote. She visits, quote, the dark house from which no one ever comes out again, unquote, and travels along, quote, the road on which there is no turning back, unquote. A recent study of Sumerian and Akkadian names for the world of the dead lists prominently, quote, the whole, the earth, the land of no return, the path of no turning back, the road whose course never turns back, the distant land, etc., unquote. Um, a recently discovered fragment speaks of the grave as, quote, the house of Irkalu, where those who have come to it are without return, a place whose dead are cast in the dust in the direction of darkness, going to the place where they who came to it are without return, unquote. Well, let me not bore you with any more of these. However, I think you get the idea that this is a very common poetic phrase back in the time of Lehi, and not something at all that we should be surprised to find in the text of the Book of Mormon. As a matter of fact, we could just as easily say that these other people had plagiarized from Shakespeare, except, of course, they lived before him. What? You say that if those were contemporaries of Lehi, but if you're talking Sumerian, you're talking at least a thousand years before Lehi. And I believe the story of Ishtar's descent goes back at least to the second millennium BC, so it's quite a bit earlier than Lehi. Okay. Well, that's fine. Uh, let me just say here, it says, uh, Lehi's own contemporaries made constant use of. Uh, I assume that that's what he's talking about afterward. Maybe he's referring to something else there. Okay? So, at any rate, we know that it is something that is quite common. Uh, this is this was his, uh, his conclusion here. He says, uh, Shakespeare should sue, but Lehi, a lover of poetic imagery and high-flown speech, can hardly be denied the luxury of speaking as he was supposed to speak. The ideas to which he here gives such familiar and conventional expression are actually not his own ideas about life after death, nor Nephi's, nor Joseph Smith's, for that matter, but they are the ideas which any eloquent man of Lehi's day, with a sound literary education such as Lehi had, would be expected and required to use. And so the most popular and obvious charge of fraud against the Book of Mormon is backfired." Unquote. Um, an interesting thing that I thought was that uh, Hugh Nibley didn't come up with a very obvious um, parallel or similar type of speech was found in the Bible, in the book of Job. And if we look in the book of Job, we find something that very, sounds very similar to this as well. It's Job chapter 10, and if we read verses uh, 21 and 22, this is what he says about death. He says, uh, before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. Then he goes on, a land of darkness is darkness itself, and of the shadow of death without any order, and where the light is is darkness. So here, even in Job, an individual in the Bible whose writings were most probably upon the brass plates, plates that the Nephites took with them from Jerusalem, there in 10.21, talking about death as a place where he's going from whence I shall not return. So we have the very same idea there in the book of Job. An argument could even be made that both uh, Lehi and uh, Shakespeare got that idea from the same place, which, which was from Job. Though, of course, we can't be sure about that. 
Let's go on to question number six, dealing with the Solomon Spaulding theory. Okay? I'm sure everyone's probably heard that name, Solomon Spaulding, whispered somewhere around uh, the stupid Joseph Smith idea. All right? Well, Joseph Smith was very, very stupid. He was an ignorant boy. He produces this book over 500 pages long. And people were very eager to go ahead and just say what a dumb book it was until they started reading it. And they started seeing, wait a second, there's no way that Joseph Smith could have written this book. Therefore, we have to find somebody else who obviously wrote it, right? Since Joseph Smith's story can't be true and he couldn't have done it because he was too ignorant, we have to find somebody else to pin it on. And one of the most prevalent stories, one of the most popular stories then, and even today, is this idea about Solomon Spaulding. Well, who was Solomon Spaulding? He was a uh, minister, at least in name. Uh, he'd become somewhat disaffected and had taken up being more of an atheist by the time he died in 1816. So notice that he, he died in 1816 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, during his free time, he wrote a, a, a fantasy novel, a romance. And it never got any title other than uh, unpublished manuscript, which gives you an idea of how successful he was at getting it published. Uh, it was never published. And uh, it dealt uh, briefly with a group of people who came over from uh, Rome, basically, in the time of the Roman Empire, to uh, the United States, this area back then. And they met the Indians, and there was this whole romance with an Indian princess and a, and a number of other things. Uh, but early on, uh, a few anti-Mormon critics, namely Hurlbert and Howe, uh, got together, and uh, they went back to the area where Joseph Smith had lived, and they came up with this idea, and I'm just going to go over it generally because I don't have time nor really the inclination to get into it in depth, though I'll give you re uh, some references if you'd like to go into it in depth. Uh, they went back to this area, and they came up with this idea that Joseph Smith must have uh, somehow gotten a hold of this manuscript that Solomon Spaulding had written, and that formed basically the Book of Mormon. All right? Some people say it formed the germ of the Book of Mormon. Some people say it forms the historical part of the Book of Mormon. Then you have Walter Martin today, who even today in tape says, well, Solomon Spaulding wrote the Book of Mormon. So in other words, it's, it's basically identical to the Book of Mormon in his theory. Um, well, very shortly after this, this manuscript disappeared. And basically, it looks like it disappeared while it was in the hands of these anti-Mormon critics. And now they had a very, very convenient uh, and good argument. Well, it was exactly like this manuscript written by Solomon Spaulding. Someone who might want to investigate that claim would say, well, where's the manuscript? Say, I don't know. It's gone. But take our word for it. It was exactly like it. So that was a, a very, very good argument for a long time because there was no way to check up on a story until 1884. A number of years later, this unpublished manuscript was once again discovered. This is talked about here in the notes of the Articles of Faith the book, The Articles of Faith, by James Talmadge, here on page uh, 501 in Appendix 14. The true account of the origin of the Book of Mormon was rejected by the public in general, who thus assumed the responsibility of explaining in some plausible way the source of the record. Many vague theories based on the incredible assumption that the book was the work of a single author were put, were put forward. Of these, the most famous, and indeed the only one that lived long enough in public favor to be discussed, is the so-called Spaulding story. Solomon Spaulding, a clergyman of Amity, Pennsylvania, wrote a romance to which no title other than Manuscript Story, that was the title, excuse me, Manuscript Story, was prefixed. Twenty years after the author's death, a Mr. Hurlbert, an apostate from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, announced the resemblance. 
between the story and the Book of Mormon and expresses his opinion that the work presented to the world by Joseph Smith, i.e. the Book of Mormon, was nothing but Spalding's romance revised and amplified. Then it talks about how the manuscript was lost. Then it talks about how it was found, which is the interesting part. But in 1884, President James H. Fairchild of Overland College, Ohio, and a literary friend, a Mr. Rice, in examining a heterogeneous collection of old papers that had been purchased by the latter, found the original story. The gentleman made a careful comparison of the manuscript in the Book of Mormon, and with the sole desire of subserving the purpose of truth, made public their results. President Fairchild published an article in the New York Observer, February 5, 1885, in which he said, quote, The theory of the origin of the Book of Mormon in the traditional manuscript of Solomon Spaulding will probably have to be re relinquished. Mr. Rice, myself, and others compared the, the Spaulding manuscript with the Book of Mormon and could detect no resemblance between the two. Some other explanation of the Book of Mormon must be found, if any explanation is required, unquote. Um, this, if any explanation is required, that little comment there by James Fairchild is important because he was by no means a friend or even a sympathizer of the Mormons. He basically thought they were a bunch of deluded fanatics to follow after Joseph Smith and this ridiculous work called the Book of Mormon. Now, whereas that may not be complimentary to us who believe the Book of Mormon, yet it's very important because, you see, he's a hostile witness. He has nothing to gain. He has no motive at all to uh, get the Mormons out of this jam that they have with the Solomon Spaulding story, if indeed it does bear any resemblance to the Book of Mormon. He's got no motive there. He's going to tell it like it is. And he does, and he says that there is resemblance between them, and uh, that if they're gonna, if people want an explanation for the Book of Mormon, they're gonna have to look elsewhere. Um, I, I looked at this article, it takes an eighty-five article. It's over in the UC Library, and there it mentions that the manuscript had gone off in a trunk to his niece in Hawaii, and they had obtained it from her, and so it can be traced. It isn't just that it showed up. Okay, great. So it can be traced, and I think you'll find out if you want to do any more research on it. It talks about tracing that here in uh, this book called A Lion Way to Deceive, Volume 2, by Robert L. and Rosemary Brown. It talks about that more in depth and about the other things that went along with this entire theory. Um, right, and that talks about that in here, because of course, well, that was the history part, and then, well, then someone else must have written the religious part, and so Sidney Rigdon, the preacher, must have done it, even though he maintained until the day he died that he never met Joseph Smith until after 1830 when the Book of Mormon came. To spill the beans on Joseph Smith, I'm sure it was Sidney Reagan who was very much disaffected from the church at different times in his life, and, and of course when he died. Um, this, uh, you would think, I would think anyway, that this type of evidence coming forth back in 1884, that's over 100 years ago, would put that theory to rest. And indeed, in most circles, at least in scholarly circles, it has. And yet as recently as 1970, uh, let me see here, 77, this book came forth. Who really wrote the Book of Mormon? A startling new discovery. And yet the startling new discovery is nothing more than the old Solomon Spaulding theory revamped. You see, if you give something a long enough time, people will forget about it, and you can bring it forward as a startling new discovery. Indeed, this was very popular. Um, let me tell you something a little bit about the people who wrote this, so you can get an idea about them, because it's very interesting. Uh, the foreword is by Dr. Walter Martin, perhaps the, uh, you know, the Antichrist of Mormonism, as I, I call him, you know. Because uh, he's very much uh, in the in the lead uh, with a couple of others in criticizing the church and making a good deal of money from it, and yet it's actually written here by Wayne L. Cowdery, Howard A. Davis, and Donald R. Scales. Now notice that interesting name, Wayne L. Cowdery. Does that sound like anything familiar? Well, it sounds kind of like Oliver Cowdery. 
It's spelled different, though. This Calgary here, Wayno Calgary, is spelled C-O-W-D-R-E-Y. So it's Cowdery instead of Cowdery, which is how Oliver spelled his name. Indeed, if you look here on the back, now I want to quote you from this book so you'll understand I'm getting this right. We learn a little bit about these authors. You can even see a tiny picture of them here. They're kind of youngish. They look very 70s, which you would expect. Um, it says, in late 1974, Dr. Howard Davis read Dr. Walter Martin's research on the origin of the Book of Mormon. An independent researcher who has contributed to numerous books, he immediately began his own investigation. In early 1975, Wayne Cowdery, a descendant of one of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, contacted Davis with information he had begun to compile. So here the direct statement is made that this Wayne Cowdery, even though his name is spelled a little bit differently, is actually a direct descendant of one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Well, who could they be talking about? Oliver Cowdery. Makes it even clearer on the inside here, on page three of this book, um, where it says his, which means uh, Joseph Smith's, Joseph Smith's translation was said to be dictated to his friend Oliver Cowdery. And then they have a footnote on that. And we go down to the bottom of the page, and it says this. Oliver's last name was spelled C-O-W-D-E-R-Y, while many of his descendants today spell their last name Cowdery, D-R-E-Y, as does what... So they're making it very clear now exactly who they're talking about, as if we couldn't figure it out before. And finally, on page 166 of the book, who really wrote the Book of Mormon, it says this. One of us, Wayne Cowdery, is a former Mormon descended from Smith's scribe, Oliver Cowdery. So now we definitely have it laid out on the line. Let me make a suggestion. Uh, if any of you ever become anti-Mormons in the future, which I certainly don't think you will, and I hope not, or if any anti-Mormons should ever hear this tape, if you're going to lie when you're talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, do yourself a favor, don't lie about your genealogy. That would be about the stupidest thing in the world you could do when you're talking about this church. Unfortunately, this individual did just that. He is not a descendant of Oliver Cowdery, and yet he goes ahead and he shows the world and says, I am a descendant of Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery has no living descendants. In this book, they lie in wait to deceive. They spend a little bit of money going back and doing the genealogy of Oliver Cowdery, not going back, but going down from Oliver Cowdery. He has no living descendants. The only descendant that he had who lived to a marriageable age was a woman, and she died leaving no children. He has no living descendants. This is an absolute, outright lie. Now, why do you suppose someone would want to say, I'm a descendant of Oliver Cowdery? And this is why the Book of Mormon isn't really the Book of Mormon. Why do you suppose someone would want to say that? Any ideas? Exactly. They have inside information. They have inside information. Yes. Walter Martin also points out that he's a descendant of Brigham Yes. And I'm going to get to that in a second. That's a, that's another interesting point. See, Oliver Cowdery, I mean, Wayne Cowdery isn't alone, and I imagine that that's exactly where he got the idea from. But notice this, what, what else he says. One of us, Wayne Cowdery, is a former Mormon. He's a former Mormon. Well, he must know what he's talking about, right? Not only is he a descendant of one of these, uh, the scribe, the second elder of the church, He's a former Mormon, and yet if you look at what this, uh, the circumstances surrounding his baptism into the church, which is discussed in here, it is very suspicious, and it looks quite clearly as though 
he uh, simply got baptized into the church uh, about a week later, wrote to have his name removed from the records, simply so that he could say, I'm a former Mormon. So that once again, he could have this additional uh, credit to his name so that people would believe what he had to say. Now, you mentioned also, something I want to bring up now, that uh, Oliver, excuse me, I keep saying Oliver because I'm not used to saying Wayne in front of that name. Wayne Cowdery probably got the idea to falsify his credentials, his descendancy, from Walter Martin, who was basically the brain man behind this book, who really wrote the Book of Mormon. And he, of course, is most famous uh, for having written The Maze of Mormonism, which is a big old book all about why the Mormons are wrong. And in the front of that, he has a dedication. It says, To the memory of my mother, Maud Ainsworth Martin, descendant of Brigham Young, but disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, he's claiming his mother is a descendant of Brigham Young. He's also, of course, saying that he himself is a descendant of Brigham Young. It would hard, be hard for your mother to be a descendant of someone and you not to be a descendant of someone. There are many other instances where he claimed to be a descendant of Brigham Young. As a matter of fact, once when this was uh, brand new out, this book, uh, who really wrote the Book of Mormon, he and uh, Wayne Cowdery were up in front of a big group of people. They were making their whole presentation. And Walter Martin was shaking his hand and saying, wouldn't it be incredible if uh, both of our, you know, our, our fathers, our grandfathers, uh, Brigham Young and Oliver Cowdery could see us today, sitting here, you know, and shaking hands and out of the Mormon church. So all these types of things to uh, give people the idea that he knows what he's talking about. Well, Walter Martin is not a descendant of Brigham Young. Once again, if you're going to lie about something to the Mormons, don't lie about your genealogy. We know we know everyone's genealogy, believe me. If somebody's got a genealogy, we have it. Um, this took a great deal more research, as you might imagine, than to find out if Wayne Cowdery is actually a descendant of Oliver Cowdery, because Brigham Young had so many more descendants. But this was all checked, verified, and if you want to look at, indeed, the very uh, the charts, etc., are in this book. But Walter Martin is nowhere a descendant of Brigham Young. Once again, he is simply lying in order to try and give himself greater uh, authority, to assume that authority. Yeah, Larry. Have either of these individuals been confronted about this? Uh, Walter Martin has, and when he was confronted about it, he, he begged off it and said, well, he's related to him. Of course, everybody's related to everybody, pretty much. You know, Somewhere along the line, he's related to everybody. He said he would change it in his next edition. He, he didn't change it in his next edition. He's going to go ahead and keep it up, you know, his idea is to deceive and to lead people astray, not to tell the truth. And as long as the majority of people don't know what the heck, you know, is going on, he's not going to change. So, but that has been done, and that, the transcript of that on a radio show is in here as well, and all the responses that he gave and how he said that he was uh, basically, oh, I'm just a relative. Um, that is going to do pretty much with the Solomon Spalding theory. That's all we're going to talk about that. I want to get on very quickly to these others. I've got just uh, three more. Uh, why does the Book of Mormon say that Christ would be born at Jerusalem? Alma 7.10 is what I'm talking about. This is a very common question concerning the Book of Mormon. Alma 7.10 says this, uh, prophesying, of course, this was about 83 B.C. And behold, he shall be born he being, of course, the Savior, from Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our father. a virgin, a precious and chosen, overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, to bring forth the Son, even the Son of God. Now, this type of question is brought forth in one anti-Mormon book, anyway, here called The Mormon Illusion, page 34, which says, 
Jesus Christ was to be born, quote, at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, unquote, Alma 7.10, the Book of Mormon. God's word says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, which prophecy was fulfilled, and it gives a couple of references in Micah and Matthew. Now, once again, we're back to the uh, stupid Joseph Smith, you understand. Joseph Smith was so stupid! He was so stupid, he didn't even know that Christ was born at Bethlehem. Now, who is it who doesn't know where Christ was born? Okay, this is a little different than Shakespeare now. Now we're talking about where Christ was born. Who's so stupid he said he was born in Jerusalem? Uh, obviously, uh, this is a fake because of this, this Book of Mormon. However, we find out from letters, ancient letters, documents discovered at El Amarna, that this is actually the way things were at this time. Now, let me, let me show you what I mean. Because the first thing you have to note is that in the Book of Mormon text, it does not state that Christ would be born in the city of Jerusalem. What it says is in the land of Jerusalem. And that's an interesting phrase right there. Notice it says, Behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers. So we're talking about the land of Jerusalem. All right? Now we find out from these Elamarna letters, which are from right around 600 B.C. Okay, you correct me if I'm wrong on that, Curtis. I believe these are from right around 600 B.C. But this is actually the way things were back then, all right? We'd have a city like Jerusalem, which would be in the center of a land which bore the same name. Okay? So we've got the city of Jerusalem and the land of Jerusalem. And does anyone know the location of Bethlehem as far as Jerusalem goes? Close. It is. It's six miles south. Right there is Bethlehem. And something that's really great about the, these Elamarna letters, which is where, where they were found, is that they even state Bethlehem as being in the land of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, you couldn't hope for anything better than that. Let me read you where it says this here. It says, uh, Elamarna, letter 287, an ancient Near Eastern text, mentions the land of Jerusalem several times. And like Alma, the ancient writer of Elamarna, letter 290, even referred to Bethlehem as part of the land of Jerusalem. In this letter is recorded the complaint of Abdu Keba of Jerusalem to Pharaoh Akhenaton, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, Pharaoh Akhenaton, that, quote, the land of the king went over to the Apiru people, but now even a town of the land of Jerusalem, Bethlehem by name, a town belonging to the king has gone over to the side of the people of Keilah, unquote. Then it says that Hebron, almost 20 miles south of Bethlehem, so that's much further uh, away from Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, than Bethlehem was. Even Hebron was also considered part of the land of Jerusalem. So you get an idea how far this land of Jerusalem extended. Now, in case you didn't catch that, uh, it says, but now even a town of the land of Jerusalem, Bethlehem by name, has gone over to the side of the people of Keilah. So here we have a direct reference in these ancient documents that show that, yes, this is actually the way it was, that Bethlehem really was in the land of Jerusalem, and that this is an accurate reference here in Alma 7.10. One other thing I want to bring up, is that we find that this is also the same pattern that was followed in the Book of Mormon lands. We find cities such as Nephi, and then we find a land of Nephi. And the city of Nephi is in the middle of the land of Nephi. And we also we find the same thing with Zarahemla. And a few others such as, um, what is it, uh, Ammonihah, the city that got destroyed. We find a similar situation there. Now, here's the crux of the matter. Because we find out, first of all, that this really isn't wrong. This is actually correct, that Jesus Christ was born in the land of Jerusalem. He 
born in the city of Bethlehem in the land of Jerusalem. But now, this is what's interesting. Okay? This was quite unknown at the time the Book of Mormon was written. This fact that there were lands of the same name around the city. Because the Amarna letters, from which I've been quoting to you, were discovered in 1887. They were discovered years after the Book of Mormon was published. No way Joseph Smith knew about this. This was lost knowledge. It was only rediscovered in 1887. Nobody knew about this at the time that the Book of Mormon was published. And yet, here comes Joseph Smith talking about Christ being born in the land of Jerusalem. As Hugh Nidley states here, he finds this very persuasive evidence for the Book of Mormon. He says, quote, Such a neat test of authenticity is not often found in ancient documents. Unquote. So, we see that this particular argument, as do so many arguments, actually boomerang and come around against the critics of the Book of Mormon. I just want to ask, what is the book you're quoting from? That's once again uh, an approach to the Book of Mormon by Hugh Nibley. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple more, and then we'll finish for today. Question number eight. How many of you have ever heard any uh, rem remonstrations? Golly, can I talk in small words? Uh, people getting upset about the fact that in the Book of Mormon, here you got Nephi compelled by the Spirit to slay Laban. Anybody? Kristen has. Anybody else? I saw, I thought, okay, we have? All right, I remember Ron Neal, who was a Jehovah's Witness friend of my brother, who was a Jehovah's Witness, many years ago, right after I got back from my mission, he told me he had read the whole Book of Mormon, okay? Maybe he did, I don't know. But uh, he said, and he thought it was just fine, the doctrines were fine, he said there was only one fault, one flaw he found with the entire book. And it was that Nephi didn't want to slay Laban, but here comes a spirit and constrains him to kill Laban. Okay? And of course, this account is found in 1 Nephi 4.18. Uh, just that one verse talks about the actual incident itself, where it says, uh, Therefore I did obey the voice of the spirit, and took Laban by the hair of the head, and I smote off his head with his own sword. Well... Uh, this is one thing that Ron thought was just a flaw in the Book of, in the book of Mormon. Now, of course, as Jehovah's Witness, he believes the Bible to be the Word of God. And yet we can find many wonderful things happening in the Bible, which if we apply the same standard, we probably rule the Bible out of being Scripture as well. I just want to give you one example, which is a story, which is one story dealing with Elisha, who, of course, as we know, is a venerable old prophet, uh, one of the great prophets in the, in the Bible. And we find 2 Kings chapter 2, And verses 23 and 24, a wonderful story about Elisha. Okay, Apparently he didn't have much hair. Apparently he was going bald or was completely bald. Uh, because in verse 23 we read, And he, Elisha, went up from there unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. Which I suppose if we were to translate into modern idiom would mean, Get out of here, baldy. So, they were making fun of the fact that he had lost his hair. And it says in verse 24, And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tore forty and two children of them. So obviously he wasn't very happy with her making fun of his bald head. Now, I don't know exactly how accurate that might be. Uh, we are in the fortunate position of not necessarily having to believe every word to be totally inspired <laughs> in, in the Bible. However, we see many interesting things like this going on in the Bible as well. Um, 
As a matter of fact, I want to bring up one other thing about this, which is that uh, Hugh Nibley, once again, I'm, I'm going to Hugh Nibley, though I'm not going to quote from him, he teaches a book of Mormon class at Brigham Young University, and oftentimes he teaches it to uh, Arab students who are there, who are not necessarily members, but uh, it's a required course, and so they do have to take it. And he remembers once teaching uh, over this particular subject matter during the course, and he was very interested in what their response would be to it, because he knew what uh, the response was from other people at times. And when they got to that part, you notice that the Arab students were sitting there, and they were just sort of shaking their heads and kind of smiling at it, and just, you know, at this particular part where Nephi goes to this uh, slaying of Laban, and he doesn't want to, but the Spirit makes him. And he immediately asks them, he says, well, wait a second, wait a second, he says, I want to know why it is that you think this is kind of funny. And they, they look at him, and they say, well, this is just kind of hard to believe. And uh, Hugh Nibley thought he understood, but they went on to explain. They said, you know, why did it take him so long to kill Laban? See, from their background, Nephi was being an ultimate weenie because he wasn't going to slay Laban. He wasn't going to do what any man would do. And so... When we look at this, we have to remember that we're looking at it with our cultural baggage. Everything that we have, we're looking at it with. And sometimes it helps to get detached from that and remember that there are other cultures. And in the culture, which is much more close to the one that Nephi was a member of, he was actually waiting much longer than uh, was perhaps expected of him. And indeed, being much more of a man of God than many others might have been at the time. Let me go to the last one, which we'll be covering today which is we know that Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 9, says the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. All right? And if you don't know that, you can look it up and you'll find it right there. It also says the Bible contains the fullness of the gospel, but we're talking about the Book of Mormon right now. It says the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. If that's so, then why doesn't the Book of Mormon contain many of the basic teachings of the church? Okay? Teachings such as plural marriage, or even eternal marriage too, Pre-existence, three degrees of glory, temple rituals, baptism for the dead, man can become as God is, etc. Okay? So that's often a question. If it contains the fullness of the gospel, how come so many things that Mormons believe aren't in? And often this is raised in the context of, well, you Mormons are covering up again. I've seen this raised many times in that context. You have people read the Book of Mormon, but the Book of Mormon doesn't really tell them what you believe, and you're sucking them in, you know? And once they're baptized and you tell them what you really believe, well, they have no more free agency. They can't leave. Um, of course, that's not true because each of these uh, doctrines, virtually anyway, each of these doctrines, uh, we don't talk too much about uh, plural marriage anymore because we don't practice it at this time, but uh, pre-existence, three degrees of glory, at the temple, baptism for the dead, etc. We know as members of the church that a person can't become a member of the church unless they have heard about those doctrines and accepted them as source in the form of the missionary discussions, Right? They have to hear those. They have to know about that, and they have to accept them as the gospel, or at least as parts of the gospel, before they can become members of the church. So we know that there really isn't any deception as far as that goes. But back to the question. If the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel, then why aren't these things there in the Book of Mormon? All right? Well, the answer is in defining what is the gospel. What is the gospel? What does that mean? What does the gospel mean? Come on. Good news, right. And it's the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of his coming to earth, and especially of his atonement, his death, his resurrection, that through that we can be resurrected and have eternal life. That is what the gospel is. Now let me tell you that the Book of Mormon does contain the fullness of the gospel. As a matter of fact, if we look in Third Nephi, chapter 27, 
In no more than nine verses in this chapter, we find the fullness of the gospel. And I don't have too much more time. If you, if you do need to leave at any point, just go ahead and, and, and leave, and I, I won't hold it against you for too long. But here in chapter 27, Christ is speaking as he visits the Nephites, and this is what he says. Verse 13, Behold, I give unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And then it goes on in verse 14 to talk about how he was lifted up upon the cross, and so that all men may be lifted up before him to be judged according to their works. And it goes on uh, to talk about what we need to do as well. It talks about what Christ had to do and what we need to do, and that's what the gospel is. It talks about we need to repent and be baptized and endure to the end, that we need to uh, receive a remission of our sins. And once again, he talks about being faithful to the end. We need to receive the Holy Ghost as well, he talks about in verse 20. Everything that we need to do is right there. And then in verse 21, he gives the other bracket on it. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So there, in actually less than nine verses, we have the fullness of the gospel. Right there from the words of the Savior. So my question is, if no, if no more than nine verses in the Book of Mormon contain the fullness of the gospel, how can we say then that the entire book itself does not contain the fullness of the gospel? It does. Very, very much so. The fullness of the gospel. Now, actually... The Book of Mormon itself says it doesn't contain everything. It says that within the pages of the Book of Mormon. In addition, it also tells us why it doesn't contain everything. And this is found in chapter 26 of 3 Nephi. Christ once again speaking. Oh, excuse me. Yes, Christ speaking here. Uh, verses 9... No, wait, I'm sorry. This is Mormon with an editorial comment. Okay. But 9 through 11, he says... And when they shall have received this, meaning the Book of Mormon, you can check out the context for yourself, and when they shall have received the Book of Mormon, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. Behold, I was about to write them all, which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi, but the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. The Book of Mormon is a great sifter. And that's what we've heard very much recently from our president, President Benson. The key as to why so many doctrines of the Restoration are untouched in the Book of Mormon is found here, the deeper doctrines, because this is a tester. If you accept this, you can have greater things. If you don't, then you're not going to get them. And actually, in closing, once again, as I say, go ahead and leave any time you might want to. But this will take about three more minutes. The Book of Mormon actually contains more than most people think. It actually contains a number of those doctrines that I mentioned before. Indeed, it talks about pre-existence in the Book of Mormon. In Alma chapter 13, it deals with the Melchizedek priesthood. And in context with that, it talks about the pre-existence. It talks about people being foreordained to that Melchizedek priesthood in the, uh, by inference, the pre-existence. And that's found throughout the chapter. Look, especially, excuse me, at chapter, at verse 3 and 5. It says, And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works. In verse 5, uh, Thus this holy call prepared to harden their hearts, being in and through the atonement of the only begotten Son who was prepared. So, the pre-existence, the premortal existence, actually is referred to in the Book of Mormon. Also, plural marriage is taught in the Book of Mormon. If we look in Jacob, chapter 2, 
And I will as soon as I can find it here. Chapter 2 and verse 24, we find this. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. And of course, oftentimes you'll find people who will quote that from the Book of Mormon, but fail to go on and quote verse 30, where it says, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Meaning, I will command them to practice plural marriage. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. So even though it's stated right there, at that time, plural marriage was not to be practiced, the Lord specifically gives a condition, says, if I will raise up seed unto me, I will command my people to do it. But otherwise, they must, they must hearken unto this. There's an interesting reference in Alma chapter 10, which may, I accentuate the may, may show that plural marriage was being uh, practiced by Amulek, though we certainly can't be clear on that. Alma 10, cha- uh, 10 verse 11. Here's Amulek speaking. Notice what he says. It's interesting. For behold, he, meaning Alma, for behold, Alma has blessed my house. He has blessed me and my women and my children and my father and my kinsfolk, etc. So it's an interesting reference there, and my women. Now, I don't know what that means necessarily. Well, it could be mother and sisters. It could, but that sounds really strange, you know, because he specifically says his father later on, and my father and my kinsfolk. So it could be, but it also could be a reference that actually the plural marriage is being practiced at that time. Lastly, what I want to show to you is that the doctrine that man can become as God is, perhaps one of the deepest and cornerstone doctrines of this church, is taught in the Book of Mormon. One guy came up to the table over at Jester on campus uh, just last year and said to me, he says, well, you know, how come the Book of Mormon doesn't teach this, you know, about uh, men can become as God? I said, well, it does. Of course, he was shocked because he was just repeating what someone else had said. It wasn't like he'd gone through the entire Book of Mormon and read it and said, well, it's not in here. Why isn't it? And then I told him, of course, that it was throughout the New Testament. It was one of the basic doctrines in the New Testament, and that really shocked him. And we'll be getting into that in the last class in this series. But let me just show you this reference where it's just as clear as a bell. Third Nephi, chapter 28. And once again, we're here where the Savior's talking. Many important and very deep things are stated by the Savior during his visit to the Nephites. 28 and verse 10. But because ye shall have fullness of joy, and ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father... Yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. Okay, now listen close to this part. And ye shall be even as I am, and I am even as the Father, and the Father and I are one. So here he's saying that we, or the faithful anyway, will be as Christ is, and Christ is as the Father. All right? Now let me take you back to very basic math, or maybe it's algebra, I forget. If A equals B and B equals C, then what does A equal? C. C, exactly. So let me just make this point here. And if we are to be as Christ, and as Christ says here, and if Christ is as the Father, then what are we to be as? The Father, exactly. So here, uh, once again, it's said really quite clearly. However, if a person... Uh, uh, just reading it, you know, I didn't notice that until uh, many times through the Book of Mormon, and all of a sudden it popped out and hit me over the head. But uh, it's not surprising that uh, people who don't believe this can't see it in the Book of Mormon. I mean, they can't see it in the Bible. It's much more prevalent in the Bible. Yes? Couldn't this just be, be saying that be res- we will be resurrected and God is resurrected because this matter is not there? I don't think so. I don't either, but it could be argued that way. Oh, sure, they can argue anything they want, and they'll make any kind of argument they can to get out of anything, believe me. But uh, 
you shall be even as I am, and I am even as the Father. And especially the, the tie-off, and the Father and I are one. You know, And that's getting much more into being and type of being in person. So I certainly don't think so. And we're going to get into that, of course, what the Bible teaches about it in the, uh, the last uh, course, or the last class of this course. Right now we have to end, believe it or not. And uh, we'll go ahead and we'll continue next week, probably with uh, more general questions. We've been very specific with the Book of Mormon. We can be a little bit more general about why are prophets necessary today? What about apostles? What about scripture? What about revelation? Aren't these things done away with? And why are they necessary today, as you say? Okay. So I'm looking forward to teaching that. So that concludes Lecture 3 of Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith. I hope you're enjoying this stroll down memory lane as much as I am. If you feel moved upon to make a contribution to Radio Free Mormon, I'd like you to do that right now. Just go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution today. I'm encouraging all listeners to this program to make a $10 continuing contribution, $10 a month, toward Radio Free Mormon. Your contribution will help ensure that Radio Free Mormon continues to spread its message behind enemy lines. Of course, that $10 a month is merely a suggestion. Feel free to go over and above that $10 a month if you feel moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Some listeners to this program have commented that they simply do not have any money that they can possibly spare to contribute to the program. If that is your case, please do not feel pressured by me. Instead, I would encourage you to share this program with as many of your friends and family as possible. Radio Free Mormon Mania starts here. Won't you help? Not only with well-deserved critiques and reviews of church teachings, leadership, and policies, but also with programs such as this, which helps answer commonly heard criticisms of the LDS Church and makes a way for members to remain faithful, if that is their desire. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.